beloveds, and welcome to The Word is Resistance, a weekly podcast hosted by Showing Up for Racial Justice. In this podcast, we explore the readings from the Christian Bible assigned for the week in the Revised Common Lectionary, focusing on what they are showing us of God's dream of liberation and flourishing for all creation. In the context of empire, white supremacy, and a culture of domination and oppression, we come together to wonder how these ancient texts might inspire decolonial, anti-racist, and liberatory spiritual practices and faith-filled living for such a time as this. I'm Dr. Sharon Funema, and I serve as the curator of the Join the Movement Toward Racial Justice, an anti-racism initiative of the United Church of Christ. I use she and her pronouns, and am recording this podcast from my home, which rests on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Ohlone people, who continue to lay down prayers and raise up life on this ground in what is now known as Oakland, California. To contribute to this podcast, which is geared toward white Christians like me, who are searching for ways to resist racism and dismantle white supremacy, we know that the work of racial justice cannot be separated from faith commitments to do justice and love our neighbors. We recognize that as white Christians, we have particular work to do in resisting the logics of supremacy, which we benefit from and are implicated in, even as it shows up in our theologies and practices. My hope is that this anti-racist and decolonial work will form us and prepare us to follow the leadership of those most impacted by racism, colonialism, and other forms of oppression to reimagine and build a new world. The live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement used throughout this podcast is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. As we begin our exploration of the scripture readings for today, I want to invite us to dwell with the Holy through this prayer of Eastertide Questions by Witt Lopez from the Black Trans Prayer Book. Let us pray. You will call on me when the final breath has left these deteriorating lungs. Who will ask my guidance when I traverse the fields of the ancients? Who will fill an altar with my loves when libations cool me and petitions rise on the wisps of incense? Who will speak my name? Will anyone honor me in, the full, in my fullness when my body returns to the earth? Will anyone breathe life into the work I have left behind and remember the hands that wrought it? Will they reach out to me and speak my name so that I might rise again? Will my descendants let me know that I am worthy of life after life? We've been
been journeying through Eastertide this year alongside the lectionary text from Acts. When I read the book of Acts, I often think of it as a compendium of the complex stories of a community wrestling with what it means to carry forward a radical vision of revolutionary love, now being practiced and enfleshed by more and more people. What happens when a movement shifts from connection to a small group of intimates with close ties and shared experiences to ever-growing circles of followers who bring their own understandings and interpretations? What practices and stories and ideas are needed? Acts gives us hints of how this struggle unfolds as a movement of emerging new life from traumatic loss and extraordinary violence. Where our scripture falls for today, the reader has just been offered the extraordinary story of the, converse, of the conversion of Saul becoming Paul and his first acts of witness and ministry. It is at the end of this complicated beginning that we encounter Peter, offering a ministry of healing in Lydda and being called away to Joppa, where the community was mourning a beloved disciple who had died. Hear the story from Acts 9, verses 36 through 43. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples who heard that Peter was there sent two men to him with the request, Please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him into the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put all of them outside, and then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. It's easy to recognize in this story the continuity between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. The way in which Peter facilitates Tabitha's resurrection echoes so closely many of the healing and raising moments facilitated by Jesus. The author seems to be purposefully using a similar narrative formula to draw parallels between this story and Jesus's healing stories. First, a leader gets called away from another setting of ministry. Then they come to an upper room. They pray or call on God. An invitation or instruction to rise is given. Then the sick or dead person arises. Finally, people witness and believe in the power of God. By using this narrative formula, it seems the author wants to drive home the point that the same healing power of God that was circulating through the world in Jesus 
continues to be active in the midst of the early Christian community, this time through Peter, bringing healing and life in the midst of death-dealing powers. The way the story is told wants to reassure readers that in this post-Jesus world, there will be others, like Peter, who can participate in the healing work that brings life back to those whose breath has been stolen from their lungs. This is the way the movement continues. A few years ago, when I was director of worship life at the Pacific School of Religion, a community member was working with our worship planning team to create a service for our weekly community worship focused on harm reduction that would include a blessing of naloxone kits and an overdose prevention training. You may recognize this as the work of fellow The Word is Resistance contributor Blythe Barno. This service was taking place in Eastertide, and in her sermon, Blythe offered a poignant expression of the ways in which the work of overdose prevention could be our participation in the resurrecting power of God. The story she told through her preaching and ritual was a powerful echo of the point the author of Acts was making in this story of Peter and Tabitha. We can participate in the healing work that brings back life. As we were planning for the service, discussing the music that would be part of worship that day, our music director suggested including the song, I Need You to Survive by Hezekiah Walker. The song was a favorite at PSR and a good fit for the service. But as we were talking about it, a new perspective on the song emerged for me. I need you, you need me. We're all a part of God's body. Stand with me, come be with me. We're all a part of God's body. It is God's will that every need be supplied. You are important to me. I need you to survive. I'd always heard this song as an expression of community, of koinonia, of interdependence. In order for me to thrive in this world, I need others. We are connected to each other as part of God's body, and we need each other. What I heard differently in the context of the conversation about overdose prevention was the emphasis. Instead of, I need you, I heard, I need you to survive. To be a part of God's body is to be invested in another's survival. In order for me to flourish in the world, I need those most impacted by systems of oppression to survive the death-dealing forces of violence, supremacy, prejudice, and hate that press in all around us. I need you to survive. More than a song of interdependence or community, this song became for me in that moment a profound expression of mutual interest. To be a part of God's body is to be invested in each other's flourishing life, not because I want to help you or save you, but because it is essential to my own flourishing, because I have a stake in it too. We make the comparison between the story of the raising of Tabitha to the healing and resurrection narratives in the gospel. There are many strategic similarities, as I noted earlier. But an interesting and important difference also comes into view. Besides being the only place in the 
Christian scripture where the feminine form of the word disciple is used in reference to Tabitha. In this resurrection story, the community's role is emphasized. In this story, it's not an individual imploring Jesus to help a family member. Here we find a community whose grief leads them to reach out and demand assistance. It is the whole community that shows up to Peter through their emissaries and implores, please come to us without delay. As a people of resurrection hope, the community in Joppa was so invested in Tabitha's survival that they drew on all the spiritual resources they had to make communal intercession for her healing. The differences in this story from the gospel healing narrative show us that this resurrection is not so much about Peter. It is about a community of powerful healing partners. They stood together, weeping and hoping, drawing on all the healing resources they had, sharing their lives in transformative ways so that one of their most vulnerable members might survive. Not only that, but when Peter arrives, he is met by testimonies to Tabitha's own resurrection practices. Other widows, who in this society would have been among the last and the least, wept and showed Peter the clothes that Tabitha had made for them. The verb tense in the original Greek tells us that these other marginalized and forgotten ones, like Tabitha herself, are literally wearing expressions of the care Tabitha offered to them. In this patriarchal and imperial society where access to resources, decision-making power, and sustenance were governed by your proximity to maleness, widows were nobodies. Yet Tabitha recognized her life as intimately interrelated to the lives and thriving of these widows. If we think about the broader story of the community in Acts, we can imagine Tabitha's spiritual practice of clothing as part of the community's larger value of shared goods and life in common. As Tabitha had invested in the flourishing of the community, especially in its most vulnerable members, the whole community was now investing in her healing. I cannot help but imagine that Peter would not have been able to do this powerful raising up work if the widows had not been standing beside him, if others had not been weeping and praying, if still others hadn't made the journey to ask for his help. This resurrection, it seems to me, was made possible by mutual interest, a shared commitment to survival, the recognition that all of us have something to gain when we refuse and dismantle death-dealing systems and powers in our world. Maybe this is the story of resurrection writ large. Maybe all resurrections happen this way. Maybe this is always how new life emerged from death. What might be raised up in our midst if we recognize that to be part of God's body is to be invested in each other's flourishing life, not to help or save someone, but because it is essential to our own flourishing.
was just finishing up my preparations for this week's podcast and getting ready to record when the news about the leaked draft decision from the Supreme Court regarding the case before them challenging Roe versus Wade and putting the right to access abortion care in jeopardy came across my screen. Like many of you, I imagine, I had been preparing for and organizing for this moment for years, but still, seeing such a concrete manifestation of what likely awaits us as a country so soon took my breath away. For so many people experiencing unsustainable and unwanted pregnancies, abortion is truly resurrection. We know that for many of the most vulnerable among us, like the widows in Joppa, abortion care is an investment in their survival, in their flourishing life amidst the death-dealing forces of white supremacy, patriarchy, and colonization. I don't know what all this moment will require of us, or how to make spiritual sense of or practice a faithful response to all that swirls around us as we anticipate the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But what I do know, and what I think Tabitha's story invites us to consider, is how we might be being called in this moment to invest in the resurrection work of abortion care. As the Black women who are leading the movement for reproductive justice teach us, we all win when people have autonomy over their bodies and futures. So ask yourself, what is my stake in assuring access to abortion care? How am I harmed when access to abortion is denied? What do we each and all gain when we dismantle the systems of patriarchy, misogyny, white supremacy, and colonization that seek to control bodies, especially the bodies of women, femmes, Black, Indigenous people of color, and disabled people? How is this moment calling us to invest in abortion care as part of each other's flourishing life and of our own flourishing? Just as the community and widows at Joppa were invested in breathing life back into Tabitha's body. Throughout the book of Acts, we encounter a community discovering what it means to be a movement carrying forward a radical vision of revolutionary love beyond its founder. These story re stories reveal a community practicing resurrection by turning the powers of death upside down and shattering the breath-stealing status quo. The community's mutual interest in each other's survival, in healing and flourishing, raised up Tabitha. Tabitha's solidarity and compassionate care for the most vulnerable in her community brought forth new life for them. This is the story of resurrection we are called to continue. As life-giving access to abortion is being threatened, what might be raised up in our midst? if we recognize that to be part of God's body is to be invested in each other's flourishing, not to help or save someone, but because it is essential to our own flourishing, because we have a stake in this. This is the way the movement continues.
our call to action this week, I want to invite us all to explore more deeply our intersectional commitments to racial justice and reproductive justice. I'll put some links in the transcript for resources that give us language to make these connections. We know that Black folks, immigrants, people of color, and low-income and rural white folks will bear the brunt of harm caused by this ruling. So how do we also work with our partners and build multiracial solidarity to practice resurrection and win the things we all need to thrive? I also invite you to make a donation to the National Network of Abortion Funds. Splitting your gift between more than 80 different organizations Abortion Funds is working nonstop to make sure people can still access and afford abortion. You can find out more at abortionfunds.org or through the link provided in the transcript. Thanks as always for joining us. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages or filling out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, where you can sign up for Surge Faith updates and find transcripts for every episode, which includes references, resources, and action links. Next week, we'll have a resistance word from Kelsey Beebe. And finally, a huge thanks to our sound editor, Claire Hitchens. As we close out our time together, I invite you to take a moment with me in the solidarity of prayer and receive this Easter blessing through the words of Adrienne Marie Brown's poetic reflection, We Who Still Alive. We who still alive whisper to each other, forgive me, I did not know what you was holding. We who still alive cup palmfuls of sea offering each other love's enduring oceans, blushing with want for our ghosts, living and dead, showing our shadows, falling for darkness. We who still alive know the future is a warping window, a dream coming true among the restless. We who still alive let no one try us. Let no one cross us. Let no one shrink us in search of their own medicine, their own magic. We who still alive be whole against the knife, be wild against the cage, be silence in cacophony, be song inside the smoke, be of the many, be set on freedom. Be so kind. We who are still alive, put your hands on your body. Your ancestors can feel you. Touch that gentle. Nourish that fire. Love that steady. Heal that self.